0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Wesleyan University in Middletown has partnered with the university in Kiev, Ukraine, to focus on the issues of environment and civic activism. Coming up, we'll hear from a Wesleyan professor and a student just back from a trip to Ukraine that included a visit to Chernobyl. We'll also hear what they learned from activists who were involved in the country's revolution back in 2014. That's later. First, the movie Little Pink House premiered this weekend in movie theaters around the country. It focuses on a Connecticut story that became national news when New London resident Suzette Kilo and several others fought the city in an eminent domain case. Ironically, that parcel of land in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood sits vacant today, years after a U.S. Supreme Court decision sided with New London permitting the sale of private land to private developers. Now, why has the story captured Hollywood's attention now? largely because of the book Little Pink House, a true story of defiance and courage. The screenplay was adapted from the book by the same name, and author Jeff Benedict joins us from a studio now at KUER in Salt Lake City. Uh, Jeff, again, is author of Little Pink House, executive producer of the film adaptation. His most recent book is a New York Times bestselling biography of Tiger Woods. Jeff, welcome to where we live.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I understand that you are originally from Connecticut. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you remember uh, going on near the end of the 90s, early 2000s in New London. What was the economic situation like back then?
2: Uh, it was tough. I mean, New London was was and has been economically depressed. And uh, I was actually not only from there, I was living there at the time, and just two towns over in East Lyme, and I was watching this thing play out the way most people were in the newspapers. And then in 2001, when I was a candidate for Congress, and in 2002, I was getting asked about it a lot, and I didn't know enough about it to talk in a, in an informed way. But basically, uh, it got to a point once the U.S. Supreme Court took the case that I—that's when I really got engaged as a journalist and decided to to go down to Fort Trumbull and and to start writing the book.
0: For those listeners who are unfamiliar with Fort Trumbull, describe that neighborhood, and walk us through a little bit of the beginnings of this story.
2: The neighborhood is—it's actually a really interesting neighborhood because there's a lot of different things in that neighborhood. It's right next to Fort Trumbull, an actual historical fort, which today is a is a park that you a state park that you can go to. But it's it's right on the Thames River, and there were a lot of homes, and there was a deli there. There were Some some mixed use uh, development there, and but basically there was a tight knit community of people who'd lived. Most of the people who lived in Fort Trumbull in the '90s had been there forever. Uh, There were literally families that had never lived in any other house. There were senior citizens who had been born in the homes they were living in at that time. And so there was, uh, there was this closeness. It was a neighborhood of immigrants for the most part. Suzette Kilo was actually one of the newer residents in the neighborhood. She'd barely moved in when all this stuff started. But her neighbors were, were people that had deep roots there.
0: Let's talk a little bit about eminent domain. Uh, before uh, this Kelo case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, how were municipalities around the country able to use this particular uh, way of uh, seizing property? And uh, you know what were some of the questions surrounding it?
2: Well, Connecticut was actually unique uh, in the sense that the eminent domain law in Connecticut was a little different than it than it is in most other states. Typically, eminent domain can only be used uh, when a, a state or a municipality takes uh, private land for public use. And on its face, that's a pretty simple concept. So, if you own a house and it happens to be on a parcel where the state intends to build a a public building or a you know a school or a, a an airport that land can be taken by eminent domain and you would be compensated for its fair market value. Uh, in in the case of New London, that's not what was happening. This was private land that was being taken by a private corporation, the New London Development Corporation, and it was going to be turned over to a developer, uh, not for public use, uh, but for private development. The, the justification for it under the law was that y- Connecticut permits a municipality to do that if you're also going to produce public benefits. And that's a, uh, that's a more liberal interpretation of the eminent domain law. In other words, if this private development was going to produce benefits for the public, such as creating jobs, generating tax revenue, it would be justifiable under Connecticut law. So in a really technical sense, New London wasn't breaking the law when it did what it did.
0: So you had a lot of parties involved in this situation, uh, uh, Pfizer being mentioned, also this uh, New London Development Corporation, uh, also uh, Republican Governor John Rowland and, and the city of New London. The New London Development Corporation originally offered to buy out residents in Fort Trumbull or to give them fair market value for their property, but Suzette Kilo and others refused. Uh, walk us through uh, you know what were some of their I mean, nobody wants to lose their house, but they had some issues right. with this this idea of, of land being taken to then be possibly for luxury condos and the ability for Pfizer to build an expansion headquarters?
2: The, the birth of this idea actually is really important to understanding the outcome of what happened here. This all started when Governor Roland and Peter Eliff uh, came up with an idea to do some waterfront redevelopment in New London and they hired uh, Jay Levin as a consultant. Jay Levin was a former mayor of New London, very well-connected presence in the Democratic Party. He got hired as a consultant, which was a, a strategically a really wise move on Governor Rowland's part. And it was Jay Levin, uh, as he looked at the waterfront and the landscape, and and frankly, what Governor Rowland was trying to do was, was would have been a good thing for New London, and and I think uh, what Jay Levin was attempting to do was al- also would have been a good thing, but at one point there was a decision made to hire Claire Gaudiani, who was then the president of Connecticut College, and they were going to put her in charge of the New London Development Corporation, which was something that had been established in the late seventies to do development in New London, but had been dormant for years. And here's where things start to get dicey. They they reinvigorate the NLDC. They empower Claire to be to be its president. She puts a board together, a board of directors, and she puts George Milne, who was then the president of Pfizer, on that board. And here is hatched this idea of trying to lure Pfizer into New London. Uh, the city had a parcel of land next to Fort Trumbull that it had been in possession of for quite some time. It had never been able to develop it because the land was polluted, badly polluted. It used to be a linoleum factory. They, they convinced Pfizer to take over that property and build a research and development facility there because they basically offered them the land for nothing. The state of Connecticut guaranteed the cleanup they removed any liability from that cleanup from Pfizer, and they offered them 10 years of tax abatements and a truckload of money to go along with Pfizer's, Pfizer spending their own money to build their building. But one of the problems with the plan was Pfizer needed more space, and, and Pfizer wasn't excited about being next door to Fort Trumbull. And so the New London Development Corporation took it upon itself to try to clear that land and redevelop it with things that would be more consistent with what Pfizer needed and wanted, uh, a five-star hotel, um, business space that would have been more consistent with the kinds of things that Pfizer was doing, new upscale housing for residents, etc. And initially, they went into the neighborhood and tried to buy out homeowners, and some people did take the buyout. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people didn't want to take the buyout. They, they didn't want to move out of their neighborhood, particularly the senior citizens and the, the elderly people who had been there forever. And I think it was the, the decision at that point to exercise the right to use eminent domain. They had the right to use it. The question all along was, should they exercise that right? And I, I think, you know, in hindsight, it's clear to see that was a mistake.
0: This is where we live. Today we're talking to author Jeff Benedict. The screenplay for the movie Little Pink House was adapted from his book of the same name. It tells the story of Suzette Kilo, a Connecticut resident, and others who fought to save their homes in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood from the city of New London and its use of eminent domain for a redevelopment plan. Uh, Jeff, uh, Connecticut Public Radio spoke to Suzette Kilo over the weekend. Uh, here's what she told Harriet Jones.
2: I think it was painful f- for everybody. I mean, my two grown sons went, and they were they were like What? Are you kidding me? You know, like, so, I mean, I I think uh, it was painful for for people to realize, you know, that, you know, you go to work every day, you pay your bills, you're a taxpayer, you're a law-abiding citizen, you keep your yard clean, grow your vegetables in your little garden, raise your family. And to have this happen to people that were just trying to be simple people and live their lives is really wrong.
0: There's Suzette Kilo talking about uh, what it was like to see her, sh- her, sh- her story uh, on the big screen, again, uh, in large part because of the book that you wrote, uh, Jeff. So how did you meet Suzette Kilo? Uh,
2: that's a great story. Uh, so I was living in Niantic at the time, uh, and, which is about an eight-minute drive from where I lived to her neighborhood. And right after the Supreme Court Uh, made its announcement or its ruling five to four in favor of the city, which was really the last stop on the tracks, meaning there were no courses of appeal after that. It was clear that the remaining holdouts were going to have to vacate and get out. And I drove into Fort Trumbull, uh, and I made a cold call. I, I pulled up to Suzette's house. And I have to tell you, and this is not an exaggeration, when I drove into that neighborhood right after the Supreme Court decision, it did look like a war zone down there. And and I, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but there were houses that had literally been reduced to rubble. There were piles of brick and stone and construction material all over the, the neighborhood. And then dotted around that were homes that were still standing. There were seven of them, as I recall, at the time, hers being one of them. Here was this beautifully well-kept home that was surrounded by houses that looked like they'd been blown up. I mean, it, it was this surreal uh, atmosphere. And I, I went up to her door, the pink house. I knocked on it. She answered. And I said, hello, uh, my name is Jeff Benedict, and I'm a writer. And she said, I know who you are. Hmm. And it was abrupt. And I, I wasn't sure if she was angry at me, uh, you know, because we'd never met before. And then, so I took a step back and then she said, what took you so long? And I, I, I wasn't sure what that even meant, and, but then she explained that uh, she's a nurse at the time and she said one of the physicians at the hospital where she worked, Bacchus Hospital in Norwich, had encouraged her two years earlier to, to reach out to me about writing that story and she never did. Um, and so she invited me in and I spent three hours that first day sitting at her kitchen table uh, asking her questions, getting to know her. She she actually made me a meal the first time I was there. She made me homemade soup on a stove. And, and it's amazing what you can learn about a person when you're sitting in their kitchen, looking them in the eye. And what I was seeing was this woman that I was talking to for the first time in my life was not the was not the character that had been portrayed by her opponents in the press for the last seven or eight years during this very spirited legal fight. I saw someone who was pretty humble, pretty simple and, and pretty injured. Um, and, and I could tell that all of this was genuine. She really just wanted to live in that house. It was the first thing she'd ever owned in her life. Uh, she'd been through two divorces. She'd raised five sons. She was approaching midlife and she finally had something to call her own and she just didn't want to go.
0: Jeff, you mentioned press accounts at the time. You know, what was the perception? What was public opinion surrounding uh, the fact that, again, the city of New London uh, wanted to build uh, on this property um, and these homes were going to be demolished? I mean, were people sympathetic to Suzette and the others?
2: Oh, completely. By this time, I mean, we're we're talking now, the The fight has been going on for eight years at that point. And I would say not only was local sentiment on their sides, the entire country was on their sides. By that point, this was in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, every network news station, you know, from Brian Williams to Dan Rather, it, everybody was covering this. and And the sentiment was, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike were on her side even in washington this was a decision that was so vilified that um there were people threatening t- from texas to california to maine that were threatening to come to new london and surround her house uh and defend it so that she could stay there despite what the court had said so when i showed up there it was this The atmosphere there, I would compare it to a powder keg that someone just needed to light a match and it was going to blow up down there. That's how intense it was when I showed up.
0: You're listening to Jeff Benedict, author Jeff Benedict, on where we live today as we talk about the movie Little Pink House. It's based on his book, which centered on Suzette Kilo's fight with the city of New London when property in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood was taken by eminent domain to make way for a redevelopment project. Now, much of the land in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood is still vacant today. Do you live in New London? What do you want to see happen to that property? You can join the conversation 860 275 7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. After the break, more with Jeff Benedict. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nall Today we're talking about the movie, Little Pink House, which tells the story of Connecticut resident Suzette Kilo and her fight against eminent domain by the city of New London. Here's a clip from the movie between Kilo played by actress Catherine Keener and a representative from the city's Development Corporation.
1: Wow, it looks really nice in here.
3: Take it you've done quite the renovation on this place.
0: I have, I love it, thank
3: you. Have hey. a seat, please. Thank you. Sure. So, mm. the NLDC would like to make you an offer to buy your house. Oh, but it's not for sale. Well, we're offering you sixty-eight thousand dollars. That's significantly more than what you paid for it.
0: I, I, I don't want to sell it. Thank you,
3: well, Mrs. Kello. We're making you a, it's a kilo. Kilo. Excuse me. Uh, we're no making you a a very generous offer on this house. I'm sure you're aware of the redevelopments. No, not really. Well, your property is in the area designated for the expansion effort. Let me ask you something. Do you work for Pfizer? (laughs) No. New London Development Corporation. But it's for Pfizer ultimately, right? Not exactly. And who exactly is it for? Doesn't matter either way, I don't want to sell.
0: That's from the movie Little Pink House, which opened in theaters across the country. Now Real Artways in Hartford will have the movie showing. Starting this Friday, you can get more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. The movie screenplay adapted from the book by author Jeff Benedict. It's a book of the same name, Little Pink House, about Suzette Kilo's fight against the city of New London and its use of eminent domain to take property for redevelopment. Um, as we mentioned, the case eventually made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices ultimately decided in a five to four decision, the City of New London could take private property and sell it to private developers. Author Jeff Benedict joins us today from the studio at KUER in Salt Lake City. Uh, Jeff, why did this project ultimately fail? Uh, you know, tw- nearly 20 years later, that land is still vacant in New London. Uh,
2: unfortunately, I think for everybody involved, that land has a scarlet letter on it. Uh, th- the entire city of New London took a major hit when uh, this lawsuit played out the way that it did. Uh, and it's unfortunate because a, a lot of people have been hurt by this and it's, it, it's quite amazing really to go down there today. And, and I live in New London County right now. And so I'm, I'm in New London often. I was there with Suzette two days ago and, uh, you know, for dinner. And, and every time that I go into Fort Trumbull and look at what's, what's not there, it's painful. Um, you would think by now that, uh, wounds would heal and that there would be development there. But the fact is, is that the lawsuit, the lawsuit made it, um, t- it got to the point where the de- there was a developer. I mean, that's what a lot of people forget. There was a big time developer who was signed up and was spending money and was on the job in New London. There was funding, financing provided by a lender. Everything was in place, but all of this came to a screeching halt with the litigation. And I, I think, uh, again, hindsight being twenty twenty. You look at the opportunities where where compromises could have been made uh, that would have enabled the development to go forward and these remaining residents to to stay. And, and it's, it's sad that that didn't happen. And I, and I think it's fair to say, too, that Governor Jody Rell, uh, she's the one who inherited this mess when she became governor. Um, you know, Governor Rowland's legal problems happened in the in the middle of this litigation as well. And so Governor Rell took over and and was the governor when the Supreme Court decision came down and then was faced with the question of what do you do now? The law has said they have to go. They're refusing to go. What are you going to do? Drag these people out of their house? Uh, use law enforcement and, and while the country watches it on television news at night? And so all of those scars are attached to that parcel, those parcels down there. And I, I think it has a lot to do with why there's nothing there yet.
0: Uh, Suzette kilo's house was eventually moved um, out of that neighborhood it wasn't demolished but she doesn't live there anymore and and neither do uh, many of the others uh, who were forced out uh, why is this why do you think this story is making it to the screen now Jeff
2: well it takes first of all it's it's rare that any book gets made into a movie so I you know w- we're very fortunate that Little Pink House got made into a film, but making movies takes a long time, and uh, so in my book, this actually happened kind of quickly, Um, but the interest in the topic of eminent domain remains relevant today because it's still being used. Mm Um, we have a president right now who who is a huge supporter of eminent domain, who who's used, who's, you know, been an advocate for it in, in Atlantic City where he had a casino industry. So I think that uh, the topic of eminent domain rem- remains on people's minds, particularly because so often it's used against the little guy. Mm-hmm. It, it's people that often don't have the power to stand up uh, and defend themselves because they can't afford it. Uh, when this, when eminent domain is used uh, to, to take people's land for development.
0: Uh, what happened? What was, this, what, were the, what was the reaction from states and municipalities around the country after that uh, Supreme Court decision? It's been uh, described as one of the most unpopular decisions in history uh, when you look at public opinion. Uh, but what did we see happening in uh, towns and states around the country when homeowners were thinking about this this threat of, of their property maybe one day being seized by the, by the government?
2: Well, it's interesting because almost every state in the union has modified and in some cases drastically renovated their eminent domain laws as a result of the Kelo case. In fact, I'm in Utah right now on a book tour But last night, I attended a panel discussion at the University of Utah's law school about eminent domain, and I was with other lawyers that that practice eminent domain law, and they were talking about how the Kelo case dramatically changed Utah's laws, making it much harder to do what was done in New London. Ironically, Connecticut has not changed its law as a result of this case. It's one of the only states in the country that hasn't uh, changed its eminent domain law to, to make it uh, more difficult for this kind of thing to be repeated. So I, I think that's kind of interesting, and it's actually something that I think should be changed in Connecticut.
0: Uh, individual towns, did they um, uh, make changes to uh, their laws if there's no uh, overarching state law here in Connecticut?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, every town can make its own decisions about how it wants to proceed. And I think one lesson that a lot of municipalities learned is that this is not the way to, to do redevelopment. In other words, at the end of the day, we're talking about people's lives. I mean, these are human beings who, who are your neighbors. And it's, these are people you got to pass in a grocery store. Uh, whose kids go to your schools. And so if you want a community to, to really function, um, there is a better way to, to do this. Eminent domain is a blunt instrument. And, and now look, when you're building a dam or an airport or a train station, it, it has its use it, 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 and it sometimes has to be used. But a lot of times when you're doing urban renewal, uh, there, are ways to, there are better ways to work with a community Uh, to make people be part of that process and to recognize that we're ultimately dealing with human beings. We're dealing with one of the most uh, precious things to a person in this country is your property, your home. There's something sacrosanct about that. And I think the Constitution of the United States tried to recognize that. The founders did when they drafted the Fifth Amendment. And so I, I think that that kind of approach needs to be taken when you're dealing with urban renewal.
0: Suzette Kielo was definitely the face of this fight, but uh, so many others were also impacted. And again, now this land uh, remains vacant. Uh, Pfizer has a much smaller footprint in the the city of New London, uh, you know, more than uh, two decades later. Uh, What do you think is going to happen to that that parcel of land? I think I read somewhere that there's plans for a possible memorial.
2: Well, look... This has been an ongoing question, you know, what do you think is going to happen or what might happen there? It's a question that's now been on the edge of people's tongues for more than a decade. And obviously um, something does need to happen down there. And I think for for the good of the city and for everybody else who's been impacted by this, It is time. I mean, and I've really felt that lately, especially now that the film is out and there's more focus on it again, that I I actually think there's an opportunity here for something really good to happen. Um, But I think it's going to take more than just talking about it, and it's going to take more than just hope. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's time, I think, for some impactful healing and bringing people together in a way that can produce something that, in the end, hopefully will be good for the city of New London, but also good for the people who were injured in this. Um, I do think there's a way to still rectify things. And, and, and in some ways, it's not just saying I'm sorry, but I think that there's a point where if you really want to make this right, there's an opportunity here to, to, to work with people who were, who were kicked out.
0: Jeff Benedict is author of Little Pink House, and executive producer of the film adaptation that's uh, uh, showing at theaters around the country, including this Friday it begins an open-ended run at Real Artways in Hartford. More information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Jeff Benedict also uh, author of uh, one of his latest books, all about Tiger Woods. Uh, He joined us today from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Where We Live comes to you on Connecticut Public Radio because of listener support. It's our spring membership campaign. You can continue to support Where We Live and all the great programming on this radio station. Uh, We're gonna come back after the break with a a segment on a unique partnership between Wesleyan University and a university in Ukraine. But if these are the kinds of conversations uh, in your backyard, um, uh, the stories that resonate that happen here uh, nationally, we want you to support this station and you can do that with two of my colleagues who can tell you more. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up Thursday, guilt. We've all felt it, that stomach-turning sensation we often associate with our parents. But could a little guilt be healthy for us? On the next Where We Live, we'll consider that question and more. And we want to hear from you too. When was the last time you felt guilty? And how did that emotion impact you? You can join the conversation on Thursday. Now we're turning our attention to an initiative between Wesleyan University in Middletown and a university in Kiev, Ukraine. For more about this unique partnership, joining me now in studio is Katya Kulcio, professor of environmental studies and dance at Wesleyan, also a member of the Ukrainian-American community here in Connecticut. Katya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you recently led a trip of students to Ukraine. I believe it was last month, uh, part of a series of programs at Wesleyan's College of the Environment. Why this focus on Ukraine specifically?
3: Yeah, um, it's extremely exciting. It's the course itself is part of a larger initiative in which we're partnering with a a counterpart university in Kyiv, Tarashevchenko University. Um, And the the fact is this is um, not just about Ukraine, it's about a much bigger issue. And that is um, the world is changing at an alarming rate. um, In wonderful ways, it's getting smaller, it's shrinking. but political and economic interdependence is increasing. Communication and inter- and information flow is increasing. Uh, changes in the environment are causing us to have to rethink issues of basic survival, even here in the United States. Um, and this can be overwhelming. So the College of the Environment at Wesleyan University, which was founded and directed by um, Dr. Barry Chernoff, who's himself a fish biologist, had the, this interdisciplinary vision of... Um, addressing these problems through research-based but very hands-on and action-oriented approach also with the premise that the environment can't be addressed alone we can't solve our problems through a one nation approach Um, so what happened in regard to Ukraine is I think one of those miraculous happenings it's just magical that these things happened at the same time the revolution of dignity that took place in the winter of 2013 and 14 um, was a, um, a truly broad-based and popular revolution it was not unlike the civil rights movement in the united states except perhaps it included a larger segment of the population um, embraced by all of ukraine's ethnic groups religious denominations Um, And it was marked by Ukrainians rejecting uh, right-wing extremism and politics of division in favor of of, um, progressive democratic values and civic mobilization. So along with this came a surge in civic engagement um, of which we took
0: note right away. Um, So when you led this group of students from Wesleyan, how did you uh, tie in that that civic engagement that's happening mm -hmm. within the country? Mm Because so often, as you know, the headlines when we think of Ukraine is its relationship with Russia, Mm -hmm. the annexation of Crimea. But you're looking at what's happening within the country, the civic engagement that continues since that revolution. Exactly. The civic
3: engagement and the tremendous strides made in legislative reforms by civic activists and non-government parties. Um, So it's, in a sense, an experiment. And we're aware that the issues of the environment in Ukraine are very much also part of a political Mm -hmm. dimension um, and and significant from a geopolitical standpoint. The the rich resources in Ukraine, its situation between the East and West, which make it politically sensitive uh, region, I'm sorry, um, and the fact that it's undergoing somewhat of a social experiment, which and that we don't hear about in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So this inundation of information also has the, the sad effect of, of making it impossible to know everything. Um, and the way we're countering that is by bringing students to Ukraine, bringing uh, movers and shakers from Ukraine to the U.S. to uh, bring some attention to the massive social reforms and, and this optimistic movement towards... Uh, um, some kind of a sustainable future. And when I say sustainable, the College of the Environment at Wesleyan understands environmental issues from a broad perspective that includes, uh, you know, natural resources, natural environment, social environment, and how those all play together. So for our students, this was a chance to go to a place where um, despite the fact that there's a war, that there's mm-hmm. been an invasion, that that there are multiple players who have specific interests in Ukraine, what's happening on the ground is a is this... Uh, op, uh, inspiring mobilization of people and that we can do that in the U.S. as well. And in fact, we can't really address our the very, very real intangible problems we're facing on a global level unless we do it together, um, you know, crossing national borders. Boundaries.
0: Yeah. Katya Kolcio is, again, a professor of environmental studies and dance at Wesleyan. Um, she led a group of Wesleyan students to Ukraine uh, last month. Uh, one of those students is on the phone right now, Anna Fox. Uh, Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. We heard Katya mention uh, being able to witness this uh, civic engagement, um, this movement, environmental movement that I, I believe is fairly new for Ukraine. What did you learn when you went there?
1: When we um, had the opportunity to visit Kiev, we were able both to go to offices of different environmental movements, both national ones um, and local ones, um, but also sort of engage with students as people um, and folks who, who are working towards um, environmental sustainability, not necessarily in sustainable move- in, in um, formal movements rather. Um, But one of the things that was really striking was, as Katya said earlier, um, sort of the energy that came out of the revolution of dignity in 2014. Um, A lot of the language around environmental sustainability was um, definitely tied in with political sustainability and and was very aware of the geopolitics, but it was also very hopeful. It was very much like um, we've we've created this revolution, we have this energy, and we're actively using this energy that we had from this national movement to make Ukraine a better place, to make the world a better place, to work collectively to do that. People would would point to different elements of the revolution of dignity. Um, You know, the fact that there was an accessible library, and that was a huge part, a huge communal element of it. People would point to those sort of as models for longer-term, environmentally sustainable movement, And Ana, is really striking.
0: a you were meeting with new leaders in Ukraine, many of them who were much older than you. What was that like oh, to, to have an, a discussion with them about uh, their process of uh, being involved politically?
1: Well, in large part, that was really empowering and really inspiring to see young people taking ownership of the things that matter to them and create these successful, unifying movements um, We spoke with folks that had created a language camp um, for um, folks in Ukraine to learn English, for folks who don't speak Ukrainian to learn Ukrainian. Um, These communal spaces where folks get to know each other and and where people from different communities. Communities can engage openly and honestly and compassionately. That was really cool. And the fact that they were so young, I think, brought this energy to our trip where a lot of us on the trip really felt like this was something that we could be a part of and that we could learn from and that we could grow from and mm-hmm. bring back to the state.
0: Uh, you also visited Chernobyl. What was that like uh, to visit that site, uh, one of the worst nuclear power disasters in, in history? And how does that, I guess, um, move the conversation forward uh, with when we talk about this new environmental movement happening there, Anna?
1: Yeah, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster is still something that, not as much for my generation, of course, but um, a lot of people remember that as being a really horrific um, accident and and when I spoke to a lot of people both in the States and in Ukraine they're like oh my god you're actually going um, it was a really intense experience not just thinking about the explosion itself but the way that uh, at that time the Soviet government reacted to it the way that especially people were asked to leave their homes and the towns that they've been living in for generations. Um, one thing that was really moving is hearing the stories of the people that went back to their homes, knowing that there was a lot of radiation and, and sort of saying, like, well, if I'm going to die either way, I would rather die on my land, on my parents' land, on my grandparents' land in the place that's been a home to me for so long. Um, there was one abandoned home we had the opportunity to, to walk into and the, the former resident had left and then returned, and she had built a stove to keep herself warm. And, and the story about this woman is that she had built stoves for everyone who had come back um, to, their, to their homes um, inside the exclusion zone. Uh, so that was really
0: moving. We're hearing about a recent trip to Ukraine uh, by uh, Wesleyan student, Anna Fox, uh, led by Katya Colcio, a professor of environmental studies and dance at Wesleyan. Um, as we listen about um, you know, just the uh, impression that uh, go- visiting Chernobyl had on Anna and others, you know, when um, people are talking about alternative sources for energy, when they look at Chernobyl, is that still on their minds Um
3: yeah, it, um, and in very interesting ways, I think an important point is that um, it's fairly well accepted that the um, environmental movement in 1986 following the di- ch- disaster in Chernobyl was a catalyst for the breakup of the Soviet Union. It had a tremendous impact on the people. But um, specifically in regard to the their recognition of the failure of the government to inform its citizens, to be tra- to act transparently, um, to keep the safety of the citizens um, as a priority. And therefore, um, what is not happening is a huge anti-nuclear movement. So nuclear is part of this complex matrix of how Ukraine understands its energy future. Interestingly, um, often, while well, we were in the context of environmental studies Uh, program, but we heard a lot of people saying um, energy independence is independence. Energy freedom is freedom. And um, the general sense is the future lies in renewable energy, and we have to move towards that. In the meantime, they're still um, bound to over 50% dependence on their nuclear power plants. They have active nuclear power plants. But just yesterday, I read in the newspaper that the nuclear plant in Zaporizhia, which is Near the eastern border, not in the conflict zone, but near the eastern border is building a giant solar power uh, component to its station. So there's this um, concern uh, and very uh, nuanced understanding of how energy relates to um, freedom, to sustainability, and where uh, citizen action, independent uh,
0: human (laughs)
3: mobilization um, plays a role in developing renewable
0: uh, resources for the long term just yeah. Uh, Katia we just have a couple of minutes but I'm curious what questions they had for you uh, this American delegation that, that again that came over about uh, the movement here with energy uh, uh, independence.
3: Oh what, what questions what Ukrainians had for you yes oh that's it I wonder if Anna might be better at answering that. Anna question. Uh, what kind of questions did the young
0: people have for you?
1: There were lots of questions about how Ukraine was perceived by the West and specifically by um, our peers at home. Um, Lots of questions also about how Russia and how Putin were perceived. Obviously we had very wide ranging answers on that, but folks generally tended to ask whether we thought it was safe to come to Kiev and whether we were scared. Um, There's a lot of, I think, concern about the fact that Ukraine doesn't always um, get represented um in the best light and and doesn't really get a fair representation necessarily um you don't hear a lot about the really exciting activist work that's happening um so we had a lot of conversations about that we also spoke a lot about how we approached learning about the environment in a broad-based interdisciplinary way the way the college of the environment integrates all sorts of socially sustainable ideas thinking about Politically sustainable ideas in addition to all of the different, you know, like hard environmental work that the College of the Environment does um, That is a really different approach um, than a lot of other environmental or geopolitical programs take um, And so that was a really interesting thing to consider
3: in light of what we were learning in Ukraine.
0: And Katya, what's next for this partnership? Mm.
3: A lot, I hope. You know, the key is in de, de, um, developing sustainable and long-term relationships, which we hope to do around the world. But Ukraine is key player in um, at this time with the College of the Environment. We're we're continuing the the program, this course as part of our undergraduate program. We're also looking for longer uh, substantive uh, program initiatives. That I. Um, can't speak to quite yet between our university and Tarashevchenko Institute for International Relations.
0: So more to come. We'd love to have you back to talk more about that. Katya Kosio, Professor of Environmental Studies and Dance at Wesleyan University, and Anna Fox, a student at Wesleyan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nopithanchil. If you appreciate the programming here on WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how you can support us during our spring membership campaign. And as always, thanks for listening.